Uh, well, it's an enormous privilege and, and grace, an unexpected gift, uh, undeserved gift to get to be on this side of the pulpit with you this morning. Uh, Sarah and I, my wife, are, we're not used to sitting in the front, front, well, it's your left. Normally, we sit in the back right. A habit formed because when we first arrived, our two little girls were not very sure about change and new Sunday school teachers and new nursery workers. And so we needed to sit where we could make a quick exit to rescue the child care workers from our children. And we stayed back there uh, most, most of the time. I would love to tell you some stories so that um, you can get to know us a little bit better. Um, I have a lovely wife, two precious little girls. But we are here this morning not to talk about the Johnsons. We are here this morning to talk about Jesus and to make much of him. And so I'm excited to, to dive into this passage. Um, it's, it's a passage that, that we just read. And when Tommy first asked me to preach this, this passage and I read through it, I thought, huh, that's interesting. Wonder what God's going to do with that. And uh, it has been a joy to spend hours in it over the last few weeks, um, getting to know it. And God has used it well in my heart and my mind and life. And my hope is that you will also uh, get to join me on that journey and be blessed by his word. If you closed your Bibles after the reading, you can open them back up. We're going to be in and out uh, a fair amount. Or if you're like me and you normally read on your Bible, on your phone, just keep it handy. Keep that app, app up. We will be in and out of it. Well, I'm not a huge movie buff at all. Um, in the five years that Sarah and I have been married, we have been to exactly two movies. Um, so I don't know much about movies. But there is something about a well-used post-credit scene that I can really appreciate. You might know post-credit scenes. That's when the credits start rolling, the movie ends, the credits start rolling, you start getting up from the theater, and all of a sudden there's another scene on the, the screen. And so you stop and you watch it. Um, and sometimes they show bloopers, right? When, when scenes did not go as expected and everybody breaks up laughing and they, they show you those moments of the actors out of character. Uh, my favorite bloopers are from animated movies because there are no bloopers when you're making the movie. Like it's a fabricated blooper, but they're often really good because they're fabricated. I can, I can enjoy those. Sometimes a post-credit scene is when you get a, a glimpse into the life of the protagonist's after the tension of the movie has been resolved, or after that relationship um, has, has been initiated, you get to see, you've gotten to know them throughout the movie, and now you get to see a glimpse of their, their life in this new world that, that they're now in. And I find those very satisfying. Lately, Marvel, with their superhero movies, um, has been doing something different. They've been using post-credit scenes to set up the sequel, to give you a glimpse of what's next in that new universe that they're creating. They do it really well. They get you hooked on the next movie years before it's even come out. Look at John 20, 30 through 31 with me. So it's just before what we read, last two verses of John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Doesn't that read like the end of the book? Like the end of the story? The theological point that John just spent 20 chapters making, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God's king, that he's God's son, and that he's the source of new life. John has masterfully made that point. It's done. Roll the credits. And then along comes chapter 21. In many ways, 
chapter 21 is a post-credit scene for the book of John. Now, it's possible that John finished penning the book, and he set it down, and the next morning, he, he opened it back up, read through it, got to the end of chapter 20, and said, you know what's missing? We need to see Peter jumping out of the boat one more time. And he wrote chapter 21 to accomplish that. But somehow, I don't think that chapter 21 is a blooper reel. Instead, I think chapter 21 gives us a glimpse of the disciples taking baby steps into this new world, this new world where they now know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's long foretold king. This new world where they now know that Jesus is the son of God and where they now understand like never before that there is new life to be had in Jesus. With chapter 21, we get to not just hear this statement that John ends chapter 20 with, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We also get to see what that meant for his disciples. We get to see a glimpse of their new life in this new universe that is being created, this new world. Chapter 21 also sets up the sequel. It gives us a glimpse into, into what will be next, into how the saga of God making all things new through his son Jesus, how that storyline is going to continue to unfold, who the new players are, and what they're going to do next. Some textual critics would actually say that chapter 21 does not belong with the rest of John. And to them, I would say, chapter 21 not only belongs with the gospel, but it masterfully drives home the point of the book for those original disciples and when we hear it right, for us too. After all, you and I don't just need to know that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God's son, and that new life is available with him. Once we, we've faced that fact, the urgent question for you and I is so what? What difference does who Jesus is make for you and I today and tomorrow? What difference does who Jesus is make for the day we die and the day after we die? That is the urgent question before us. And chapter 21 begins to answer that question for us. In, John, in chapter 21, John shows how this truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, God's King, and that Jesus is a source of life, begins to, to get pressed into the lives and the hearts of those first disciples. And the first thing that John does in the, chap the verses we're going to be looking at today is that we see the disciples begin internalizing, digesting, if you will, what that means for them. And as we walk through these verses this morning, my hope is that we will join the disciples, that we will have breakfast with Jesus that we will sit face to face with the living Lord and be utterly stunned at who he is. And that in the process, we will find some really practical help and hope for today and for tomorrow, for the day we die and the day after we die. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us and you are present with us. And my, my hope and my confidence this morning as a preacher is not that I have great words to say, but that your spirit penned these words through John 2,000 years ago, and your spirit is alive in us today. 
And my, my request to you is that you would accomplish in our hearts and our minds what you intend to accomplish through your word for your glory and honor. In your name we pray, amen. Let's dive into the story. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. We'll kind of read it in little chunks and talk about what's going on. And then at the end, we'll apply it to our our lives together. Let's read verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. At some point, after the Passover celebration in Jerusalem was concluded, after the the two encounters with the risen Jesus that John recorded in chapter 20, uh, the disciples journeyed back to Galilee. In in other gospels, Jesus gave them that command. He said, go back to Galilee, wait for me. They'd spent much time with Jesus in Galilee. Some of them were from Galilee. And the Sea of Tiberias, um, where this story takes place, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And so they were, they were back in known territory, and they went to do what they know how to do, fish. That's who they were. They were fishermen. Some commentators and scholars really, really take issue with the disciples fishing at this point. Some even go so far as to call it apostasy, to say the disciples have abandoned Jesus in returning to their profession. I don't go there. For starters, they've just been through the most traumatic experience of their life. Some level of normalcy is just good for mental health. They needed a little bit of autopilot. But at a really practical level, they needed to eat. They had had the support system built up around their rabbi, Jesus, that provided income so that they could eat. Well, he, he died. That system fell apart. They needed to eat. And so they, they do what they had the gear and the know-how to do, and that is to catch fish and sell them. So they went out and do that. I don't see apostasy. I see a really normal moment for the disciples in the midst of unimaginable sorrow and confusion. So Peter says, hey guys, let's go fishing. And the other six disciples that are, that are there say, sure, might as well. And you can imagine their frustration of fishing all night and catching nothing. It was very common for fishermen then to fish all night so that then in the morning they could go sell their, their catch at the market and it would be fresh. They worked all night and they had nothing, especially in the state that they're in. What a blow that was. Look at verses uh, 4 through 8. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Let's get this out of the way right of the way. The disciples did not recognize Jesus. And, And again, some Christians over the years have been very troubled by this. 
um, and had negative things to say about the disciples. Uh, other Christians are not troubled by it at all. I am not troubled by the fact that they did not recognize Jesus. Um, the disciples were in a rocking boat full of fishing gear clanging around them with crashing waves between them and the shore, which was 100 yards off. It's barely daybreak, so they can kind of see that somebody's on the shore. And they hear from the shore, hey, guys, did you catch anything? I, I can be sitting across the table for my wife and have, have her need to repeat things so that I know what's being said. I'm not at all surprised that they didn't recognize Jesus. And then add on the fact that at this point, Jesus is wearing his new body. It was different. And the disciples needed help recognizing post-resurrection Jesus. Almost every encounter they have, he, he does something or says something or open their, opens their eyes so they know who he is. It's not surprising that they didn't recognize Jesus. And the word that's translated children in our Bible, it's not a paternal statement. Jesus isn't looking down on the disciples. He's not calling them little. It's a casual statement. The setting goes something like this. As, as, days break, as, day, as day breaks, while they're about 100 yards offshore, somebody from the beach yells, hey guys, did you catch anything? No, no we didn't. Try the other side of the boat. I'll bet you catch something on the other side of the boat. You can almost see the tired disciples shrugging and saying, oh, might as well try it. And they did. And they, they probably were hoping to catch a couple fish they could have for breakfast. Not at all expecting that they would catch so many fish that it would almost capsize their boat. What happened next when that net fills up, really fills up, was completely unnatural, completely unexpected, completely out of the ordinary. It's not how that moment should have gone down. And in the midst of, of wrestling, wrestling this huge catch and this net that's about to break into the boat or attempting to, one of the disciples, we later find out is John, he pauses and he straightens up and he looks back to shore. And he turns to Peter says, it's the Lord. And while the other disciples are kind of straightening up and looking, splash, there goes Peter, out of the boat, back into the water. I think if Peter was to have an emoji, it would have to be a bearded dude jumping out of the, water, out of the boat into the water. Like, that's just Peter, right? And so Peter, uh, he decides in a flash to go be with Jesus. And it's kind of comical the way John writes it, right? He's, he's stripped for work. It's like he's in his cargo shorts fishing. And he decides, well, this is, this is not a proper way to meet the Lord. I should get dressed. And so he gets dressed before jumping out of the boat into the water to go meet Jesus. Um, and he does that. And Peter, who invited the other guys to go fishing, leaves them in the boat to deal with this huge catch. And he rushes to be with Jesus. Let's read verses 9 through 13. Catch up with them there. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
what follows this miraculous catch is Jesus making the breakfast. It's the most ordinary of moments. Jesus is grilling some fish and toasting some bread. And as the disciples get to shore with a boat, he says, bring some more fish. And he, he prepares them and puts them on the grill too. We're told in verse 11 that it was 153 fish that they caught. And uh, there's a lot of wild theories about what that 153 means. I don't think it's actually that complicated. Where, where there's a number included because the story is being told by an eyewitness who was there. But most importantly, the number is recorded so that anyone who knows anything about fishing then and there would say, that's not normal. That is a miracle. That's why it's recorded. And that matters because it was the miraculous nature of the catch that triggered John to look up and say, it's the Lord. That is how he knew who was on that shore because John had never encountered anybody else who could command the fish and they would obey. Only the Lord can pull that off. Friends, that's what this story is about. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. That statement that John makes is the last thing that any of the disciples say in this story. There's a little inner dialogue recorded where it's established that they all knew that it, this was Jesus that they were sitting across from. But the disciples don't say another word. Peter jumps into the water to go be with Jesus. The rest of the disciples wrangle the boat and the net full of fish to shore so they can be with Jesus. But then they just sit there in stunned silence. They are face to face with Jesus. Look at verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. It's like they're sitting there just staring at Jesus, and Jesus literally has to say, guys, eat. It's okay. You can eat. And they're, they're just slowly taking bites, staring, stunned as they take in Jesus. Jesus had been dead. And now he came to their office to make them breakfast. It's an absolutely startling moment that stunned them into silence. They had watched Jesus be flogged to an, within an inch of his life. They, they saw the thorns sink through his scalp. They, they heard the nails tear through flesh and bone on their way to the wood. They heard his victory cry. They felt creation shudder when the creator died. They saw the blood and water flow out from his side when he was pierced. They saw his lifeless body come off the cross. They, they followed to the tomb that he was sealed into. Jesus was dead. And now he's making them breakfast. It's amazing. 
It's utterly amazing. And they didn't know what to do with this moment. Jesus could have arrived with a detachment of angels and demanded allegiance from them. He could have been furious that they didn't believe yet, that they didn't get it, that they were so dense. He could have written them off and started over. He could have done any number of things. But he shows up at work and makes them breakfast and gives them time to begin digesting who he is. It's such an amazing moment. John records two other times that that the risen Jesus appears to the disciples, but both of those feel rushed into the point. This time around, Jesus gives them time to begin digesting the reality that he was once dead, but he is now alive. Friends, Jesus was once dead, but he is now alive. John tells the story in a way that not only helps us see the stunned silence of the disciples, but also in a way that, that invites us to join him, to join them there. That invites us to, to just sit with stunned silence and to wonder at the fact that Jesus was once dead, but is now living. That it's the Lord. We're invited here to hear John's statement, it is the Lord, to rush with Peter, to be by Jesus' side, to sit with all the disciples, and to ponder and to wonder and to start digesting this reality that Jesus was once dead, but he is now alive. That across from them, that across from us, sits the living Lord Jesus. I'm, I've been really glad to have this opportunity as I've studied this passage. And I realized that those original disciples needed this moment because their hearts were so overwhelmed and their minds were so blown that, that the, the, the once dead, they saw Jesus die. He was dead. He is now alive and he is Lord. They needed time to process that. And I've realized, as I've had that opportunity, that for us 2,000 years later, our hearts can be numb and our minds can be bored with this reality that Jesus was once dead, but is now alive, and that he is Lord. They needed time to take in this this truth because it was so new. Friends, we need time to take it in because it's so old. We can grow so accustomed to it. Would you join me in sitting for a few moments face to face with the living Jesus and taking in what that means for us? I'm not sure what happens in your heart and your mind as you sit face to face with Jesus, the living Lord. You might actually be seeing Jesus for the first time for who he truly is. God's chosen ruler, God's son, who died to rescue you from sin and rebellion, to bring you into his family, to himself, 
and under his good reign. That might be new news to you. And if that is you, I have great news for you. Listen to these words from from the Apostle Paul, uh, a murderer, persecuted Christians, and who also came face to face with the living Jesus. Paul said this about himself. This trustworthy is this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus died to completely settle the debt of our sin and rebellion and to make us completely new. He did it all, and he invites you to trust him. To trust to trust him for the work that he has done and not for what you might need to do. And to trust him for who he is, and not who you want him to be. And if that is you, then we invite you to join us as a group of broken people stumbling through life after Jesus, wanting to live well for him. We would love to have you with us. This salvation that Jesus offers is possible because Jesus is living Lord. I'm not sure what happens in your heart and your mind as you sit face to face with Jesus, the living Lord. Maybe guilt or shame rush in. Guilt or shame over squandered moments, opportunities that you intentionally ignored, over presumptuous sin, over words that you said that you just can't take back or over actions that you just can't undo. And if that's you this morning, I also have good news. The author of Hebrews has this to say to you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, be, may receive mercy in our time of need. The living Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, mediating for you. It's as if, when, when those things, those moments that bring you guilt and shame, they're real. They matter. The Father saw them. But at those moments, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he sees it happen. And he says, Father, he's ours. I paid for that. We can love him unconditionally. Those things that bring us guilt and shame, they don't define us. They don't define us not because it isn't true, but because it isn't the final, final world, final word. Our failures and our sin, they're very true. They really matter. On the cross, into darkness, Jesus absorbed the wrath from God for all of those desires and decisions that bring guilt and shame to us. It's very real, but even more real, even more certain than what we did that brings us guilt and shame is Jesus' word on the cross. 
It is finished. It is finished. Payment has been made, and all that remains from our Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit is love. Unconditional, unfettered love for you right at that moment that brings you guilt and shame. Forgiveness and restoration is possible because Jesus is the living Lord. I'm not sure what happens in your heart and your mind as you sit face to face with the living Lord. Maybe you live with blinding pain and disappointment. Maybe the consequences of, consequences of someone else's sin or even of your own have, have devastated your loss, your life. And maybe hope is, is just impossible to find. Maybe joy to the world feels like a slap in the face because of what your daily life feels is. Maybe your body is, is racked by sickness. Or maybe you've watched a loved one turn into a shadow of who they really are because their body, is, their mind, their heart, everything's falling apart in this broken world. Maybe the pain of this world is so great that you can't wait to escape it. Friend, for you, I have a double hope. First, listen to these words of Peter who jumped out of that boat and rushed to be with Jesus. Much later in his life, he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These words mean that though our bodies will fail, though the brokenness of this world will at times break us, we have this promise here that the, literally the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is now fully engaged in guarding our inheritance, our future. There is nothing that can rob what God has planned for us. Nothing. The simplest way to say it is, is that sin and brokenness, ours and around us, can never do to our souls what cancer can do to our bodies. And I know that that hits very close to home for many of us. But it's wonderful news, friends. Nothing can do to our souls what disease can do to our bodies because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is fully engaged in guarding your eternity, your future. Second part of the hope I have for you, listen to these words also penned by John who wrote the story we're studying this morning. Late in his life, he had a vision of how God was going to conclude his story of making all things new in Christ. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus doesn't ignore the physical and emotional pain that we live with in this broken world. Arriving with the living Lord and his new creation doesn't mean we forget this life. No, no. Jesus honors your moments, your pain, your tears. He cares about the life that you are living today so much that he will one day tenderly wipe away those tears. He knows right now what you're going through. He is with you right now as you go with it, and he will make it right. It's the beauty of God's redemption through Jesus is that it's not a forgetting what was, but it's, it's, it's making new. It's making the bad good and the broken whole and the old new. That is what the living Lord Jesus does. And that is possible because he is the living Lord Jesus. And lastly, I'm not sure what happens in your heart and mind as you, face, as you sit face to face with the Jesus, our living Lord. But maybe you are filled with a desire and a commitment to live for King Jesus, to live under his reign, to be his ambassador as never before. Maybe you're so enthralled and excited that you can't, get, you can't wait to get to work for King Jesus. Maybe right now you are thinking of a neighbor or a family member or a coworker or a fellow hobby enthusiast that you can't wait to introduce to the living Lord that you're sitting across from. And I offer this certainty to you. Jesus is with you in that endeavor. Listen to, these are, these are in many ways, Jesus' last words before he ascended to the Father. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every ounce of authority that exists in the universe belongs to King Jesus. He will marshal all of it that is necessary to accomplish his mission, to gather rebels under his reign, to turn sinners into siblings of his, of making all things new under his perfect and unquestioned rule. That's going to happen. It's going to happen for everything. And right now, Jesus does that work one life at a time. It's why we're sitting here because he did it in us. And it's why we have neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends because he's going to do it for some of them too. We don't know if the neighbor that you're thinking of right now is going to in fact yield to the living Lord when they see him in your life and hear of him in your words. That's not your burden to carry. Our role is to be faithful ambassadors and know that as you do that, Jesus is with you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. And we have the privilege of entering this new year, not hoping that you and I have what it takes to do what we need to do or what we think we should do, but we have the gift. 
of entering this new year with the living Lord who loves you fiercely and is by your side through the pain of this world and as you engage in the mission of God. Let's pray.